Good morning. Merry Christmas. Great to see you this morning. It was great if you were here on Friday evening. We had a great time uh, just celebrating the birth of our Savior and looking at the, that entire story of his life and what he came to do. And hopefully you were here. We had a packed audience. I think it was SRO, standing room only. Seems like we've added a row back there, which was tremendous to have to do. Um, uh, my name is Brian McKenzie. And uh, my wife and I and our family moved here to the lake uh, back in the middle of March and been here at the Potter's House since then and enjoying our fellowship and time of growing with other Christ followers here and kind of get involved in the community and the church. So it's a privilege for us uh, to be here. I have my wife's here and then her mom, Jan, uh, is with us uh, from northern Indiana here for a little bit, actually heading back today. And then my oldest two daughters are sitting down here, Anna Marie and McKaylee, and we got two in the back and I've got... To elsewhere, too, just had a privilege last Sunday to officiate the wedding of my oldest son, Joshua, and his wife, Lauren, are in Florida right now uh, on their honeymoon, awaiting the next wedding of my next son, which is happening this coming Saturday. Uh, so they're having an extended honeymoon. My, my older son can thank my next son for allowing him to have an extended honeymoon in Florida so he can be there for that wedding as well. So we've got a lot of great things going on. So I was going to say you know, my wife and I have six children, but now by God's grace we have seven, and we're going to add another one this coming Saturday. So we're, we're excited, and you're thinking, man, it's a big family. And the more the merrier, and we're, we're very thankful for uh, what God has done in and through our family. Well, um, let me get everything situated here and... Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do with you this morning, whether that be in paper copy or electronic copy, and I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 2, um, verses 25 through 35 we'll be looking at this morning. And the title, as you can see here from uh, the screen, the title of the message this morning is The Promise of Christmas. And before we get going here, uh, let, would you join me in prayer? So, Lord, we have gathered here this morning, Lord, to lift our voices and our hearts and our lives to you in praise and worship and adoration. And, Lord, I know a lot of that's been going on in the coming week up to Christmas. And, Lord, I pray that uh, this beginning of this week, uh, it would propel us into another week of doing just that. And, Lord, when we come to this time, when we gather in, in your word, we are at your mercy. Lord, uh, it seems simple to open up your word and read your word and uh, just expect something to happen, that we understand that unless you move in our hearts and our minds, then nothing will happen. So we would pray at this moment in these next few moments together as we look at your word together, that you would move in our hearts, you would move in our minds, Lord, you would make us more like Jesus as a result of spending time together in your word this morning. We trust you with that and we pray this in the name of of the Word made flesh, Jesus. Amen. Well, each week uh, when we gather together it, in time for in this time of pro- proclamation of God's Word, Jay, who's sitting back here, he normally gets up here. He's a lot better if you're visiting. He's a lot better looking than me, so you would notice him. And you'd no- notice that, obviously. He gets up here, and, and he generally begins um, stating uh, the title of our message this morning, which I did. So I'm following a good suit right now, state the title, and then he would follow by reviewing last week's message. So we, get, we kind of get caught up to speed. We've been going through the book of James, finished the book of James this year, so he reviews and brings us up to speed. And, and then we usually stand together and read the passage of Scripture for the morning. And then Jay will say something like this, and if you've been here, you know he's going to say something like this. 
And based upon that background, this is a story of God's word from uh, the story from God's word this morning, taken from 2 Samuel chapter 9 or something like that. And then he'll proceed to tell the story from God's word. Old Testament, maybe a New Testament, maybe a parable that Jesus told him, tells a story. And then he'll say, and this concludes the story from God's word this morning. Well, the story told always ties into the passage we're studying. Like we studied James here in 2021. So whatever story he tells, it always ties in and, and does a couple of things. It, it, it illustrates and explains the main point or the main points in the passage we're studying in that particular book. It also stresses this point. It stresses the point that the Bible is not just a bunch of unrelated stories, but it's one big story. It's his story. It's his story. The whole thing is one big story. I like to think of it sometimes like this, and, and this, is, this, is, this helps me remember. There was creation. There was corruption. There was covenant. There was Christmas. There was the cross. There's conversion. And then there'll be a consummation. And that's the big story of God's word. But, but the story of God's word, and, and so, if we just sum it into to one uh, sentence, I would say that the story of God's word is this. God's gracious plan to rescue a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. That is the story of God's word. And you're thinking, well, that, we got the whole story. Jaden, I'm telling more stories now, right? We got the whole story in one sentence. Well, it's a lot more than that, but that's the summary of, of the story. That's the story of God's word. And every individual story in the Bible either supports that or further explains that big idea, that big story. All the smart people like to say that it's the meta narrative, it's the big narrative of Scripture. That's what it is. And in God's gracious plan to rescue, a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin, we find that God makes a promise early on about how he's going to accomplish this plan to rescue people. And he reiterates this, this promise over and over and over again and further explains this promise that he makes early on so we can understand it and explain it and uh, he explains it even better so we can understand it. So where would you go to find the very first promise that God makes about Jesus? Because we know ultimately his story is about Jesus. It's about what G who Jesus was, what Jesus did, what Jesus is doing to accomplish that plan. So where would you go to find the very first promise of Jesus. Now, if you were here a few years ago, I'm not sure exactly what year, Jay, but he taught through the book of Genesis. Uh, and uh, if you were here, maybe you, oh yeah, I remember. It was in Genesis. Well, you know, it doesn't take long for God to make his promise in Genesis. In fact, in Genesis 3, immediately following Adam and Eve's fall into sin, and, and I always wonder, why do we call it the, the fall? I'm not sure they fell. They just jumped headlong into it. You know, following is like, like involuntarily. Well, they didn't, but we call it the fall, so their fall into sin, all right? Right, right after that, God begins telling uh, of the curse, or the consequences of sin to all the parties involved in the first sin. And he begins with Satan. And, and we find these words in his words to Satan in Genesis 3.15. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In these words, we find the very first promise of Jesus in the Bible, the the first promise of the good news that God is going to rescue a people from the ravages of sin, right here in the beginning of the Bible. And maybe you've never seen this before, and you're thinking, what's that have to do about Jesus? It has everything to do about Jesus. Look at this, this amazing passage of Scripture with me. I will put enmity, and the word enmity, it means hostility. There'll be hostility between you, he, he, he's speaking of, to Satan, and the woman, okay, Eve at this point, and between your offspring, some translations say seed, and her offspring. So it's going to be a descendant of the woman, right? And then notice it, it changes, not just for any old offspring, it's a first person masculine pronoun. That's all I remember from English. So I'm giving it to you right there. He, he shall bruise your head. So it's pointing to a specific descendant that would be a male from the woman. And you shall bruise his heel. So think about this with me. Speaking of Satan, he shall bruise your head. And in so doing, you shall bruise his heel. Which one is a fatal wound? A head wound or a heel wound? A head wound is. On the cross, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. He crushed the power of Satan and overcame the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. And in so doing, yes, he was, he was bruised. His heel was bruised. He went to the cross. He died physically. This is the first promise of Jesus. This is the first promise that God makes about how he's going to re- remedy and rescue people from the ravages of sin. And it doesn't take long for him to expand on this in Genesis. And when we come to this guy named Abraham, which many of us know, look what it says in Genesis 12, uh, 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, uh, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We find in this promise a further explanation of this promise, uh, of the promise in Abraham's life that it will be through Abraham's offspring that the Messiah will come. And listen to this, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring, Abraham. How are all the families of the earth blessed? How is a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation blessed? Only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first promise that God makes in Scripture. And he continues to expand on this promise in the history portion of the Old Testament, in the poetry, in the prophetic portions of the Old Testament. And then as we were reminded on Christmas Eve, after 400 years of silence from God speaking through the prophets. It's dark. And we were reminded on Friday night, if you were here, if not, we'll remind you now, there were fireworks. There were fireworks as the angels descended and better than any fireworks display you've ever seen, and it lit up the night sky. And I love this. I love who he chose to appear to. A bunch of shepherds. Unworthy, unclean, outcasts who couldn't even go to the temple without going through a a, a huge ordeal of of cleansing themselves to get to go to the temple. That's who God chose to say, the king is coming. He's here. These shepherds and the angels make that announcement. And, and, And everything has changed. 
Because now the promise of Genesis 3.15 is coming to light. It's, he's come to earth. I don't want to ever get over that. And I don't want to ever get over that I can relate way more to the shepherds than anyone else. Well, this is the story of God's word this morning, his gracious plan to rescue a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Now, I've said that about four times, so hopefully you've got that. If that's all you get this whole morning, then we've had success, because that is the story from God's word. With that background, would you stand with me as we read our passage of Scripture this morning? It is a little longer passage, so uh, bear with me as we read this together. Luke 2, 25-35. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when his parents brought him in, the child Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his and mother were amazed and the things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You may be seated. And we will trust that God will use his word in our lives this morning to bring him glory and make us more like his son. Well, as we study through this passage here this, this morning, Luke 2, 25 through 34, I want to point out at least three main truths concerning the promise of Christmas that will lead to many implications for our lives. I think last time I preached, I remind you that, that, that a lot of times we'll talk about the application of God's word, where application in, in the sermon. I never give applications, I just give implications because application doesn't happen here, it happens out there, right? The implications will lead to applications. We don't apply God's word here, we apply it out there. What a privilege. And we're going to see a lot of implications that will encourage us to apply it. But before we discover those three challenging truths, let's briefly examine a little bit of the context of our passage that we just read. At the beginning of chapter 2, and we were reminded that the, the, the angels appear before the shepherds and they announce that Jesus is born. And the shepherds go and visit Jesus. That's an amazing passage there. And, and, and they go away praising God once they see Jesus. And in, in 2.21, before this passage, Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day like any good Jewish male boy would be. And then in verses 22 through 24, leading right after our passage, we find that Joseph and Mary have brought Jesus to the Jerusalem to obey the, the, the Lord in presenting their son to the Lord. That's what you did. On the eighth day, you would come and you would present him to the Lord, uh, a, a male Jewish child. So with, with this brief background, let's now discover these, these three truths concerning the promise of Christmas. The first truth I want us to, to be challenged by this morning about the promise of Christmas is this, the expectation 
of the promise of Christmas, the expectation of the promise of Christmas. Look with me there again in verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon was obviously a godly man who followed the Lord with all of his heart. He was serious about his service to God. Now notice what Simeon is doing with the phrase, looking for the consolation of Israel. What is the consolation? Maybe your translation says the comfort of Israel. What would bring comfort or console the nation of Israel? Well, there's only one thing, the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15 and how it was expanded all throughout the Old Testament, promised for thousands of years to the people that God was going to do something about their biggest problem. And their biggest problem was their sin and alienation and separation from him. That's what would bring them consolation. That was what would bring them comfort. And this, this, has brought a, this brought hope to Israel for thousands of years. It still brings hope to us today and for those who are, still haven't met the Messiah. Simeon's expectation of the promise of Christmas, the consolation of Israel, is found in Jesus. Well, in order to examine his, his expectation a little bit more, I want us to ask two questions about his, his, his expectation about this promise. The first question is, to what extent was Simeon expectant of the promise of Christmas? To what extent? How great was his expectation? That's the question. Notice what, with me, once again in verse 25, the word looking. Your translation may say waiting. It means to look or wait with expectancy. It's not, listen, oh, okay, I looked over here. That's a different kind of looking. He was looking. It's also in the present tense. It means he was looking, he was looking, he was looking, he was looking, he was looking. He never quit looking. He just kept looking for God to fulfill his promise, the comfort of Israel. It was not just some passing thought that came through Simeon's head every once in a while. He was consistently looking knowing that God would bring forth his promise. Well, God's made many promises in his word to those who are his by faith in Christ. So what is the extent of our expectation in the promise he's made to us? Just take, for example, the promise that he makes that he will use his word to grow us and make us more and more like Jesus. There's promises all throughout his word that that's what he'll do. He uses his word. Just for example, in John 17, 17, Sanctify them, this is Jesus, praying to the Father. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. The word sanctify means to set apart or to make holy. And Jesus here in his prayer tells us that the way we're made holy or become more like him is, is through the truth of the word. We also find this truth in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. It says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it, the, the milk of the word, you may grow in respect to salvation. So what is our level, or how great is our expectation for God to come through on his promise to grow us through his word? Individually and corporately, what was our level of expectation when we walked in here this morning about what God might do through his word? Was it high like Simeon's? Were we looking? Are we looking to hear from God's word this morning so he might make us more and more into his image? Was that our expectation 
That was the expectation we see from Simeon that God would fulfill his promise, and God has made us many more promises in the scripture. How about the second coming? He didn't just come one time. In, in, in the season of Advent, early on when it began to be celebrated, it wasn't just about the first coming. They always made it a big deal about the second coming too, during Christmas, yes. The second coming, and I think back when I was a kid growing up, all the songs we used to think about, sing about uh, Jesus is coming, over and over again, all these songs about the king is coming, if you all remember that one, right? That was an old southern gospel song. It shows, shows what kind of church I grew up in. We had a lot of those, and we sang about the coming of Jesus all the time. You know, it, it just in general, I'm not saying that about our church, but, but I don't see us singing a whole lot about the coming of Jesus anymore. The expectation that he's coming, we, we've kind of been lulled into sleep that, hey, this is all there is. We'll just make this the best we can, myself included. He's promised he's coming again. What is our expectation that he's coming again? Is it great? And to the extent of how we use our lives, use our talent, our treasure that he's given us, it says a lot about our expectancy, about how great our expectancy is about him coming again, that he will fulfill his promise. So by his grace, may we be those who are like Simeon, looking with great expectation that God will fulfill his promises and he will complete the story that he has begun. Well, now let's consider the second question uh, to more thoroughly understand Simeon's expectation of God's promise here. Upon what was Simeon's expectation based? We've already been reminded the promise of the Messiah is well documented throughout the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, But this is not the only truth on which Simeon bases expectation. Look at verse 26 again in our passage this morning. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Somehow, this is amazing. I have no idea how this happened. No one does. We don't have any other record of understanding how the God the Holy Spirit instructed or informed Simeon that he would, before he died, he would get to see physically the promise of the Lord's Christ. It just says he did. We don't know. But he did. This is an amazing promise. And notice again how this information was revealed to Simeon. It was revealed him by God the Holy Spirit. This is equivalent to the phrase that we see many times in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to, and I give a name, and the word of the Lord came to. It's usually a prophet. And, and this is what this means. This is equivalent to that. The basis of Simeon's expectation was the word of God. God had made him a promise. Simeon was so extremely expectant of God to fulfill his promise because the basis of his expectation was on the word that came from God and he trusted God at his word. Simeon knew that God's word was trustworthy and that God will fulfill what he had promised. So what's the basis of our expectation? I'll say we should follow the example of Simeon. What do you think? The basis of our expectation should be on his word and all he says to us in his word. Well, We've been challenged there by the first truth concerning the promise of Christmas, the expectation of the promise of Christmas. So I want us to turn now and examine the second truth that will challenge us. It's the reception of the promise of Christmas. Excuse me for a second here. These, this change of weather has is, is gotten me here for sure. So the second truth we want to look at is the, pro, the, expect, expect, not, I mean, the reception of the promise of Christmas. How did Simeon receive the promise of Christmas? In order to answer this question, we need to look at three truths that we see about the reception of the promise of Christmas. The first truth about the reception is found in verse 27. 
Look what it says. And he came in the spirit into the temple. We see here that Simeon's reception of the promise of Christmas was it was a spirit-led reception. He was being led by the spirit to come in the temple at this specific time. Hey, there's no, there, there, there's no um, coincidence coincidences in God's word. In fact, there's no coincidences in the world. I just, they're all God incidences. God led him in the perfect time when Jesus would be coming in there to be dedicated. So he leads him by the Spirit. And, and just as you think about this, and as I think about this, our reception of Christ is just like Simeon's. We receive Christ because we're led by the Spirit to receive Christ. Our reception of Christ is because the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and reveals to us the truth that we're sinful and need a Savior. And we can take no credit for, for our understanding of that truth. The Spirit enlivens our, our heart and our mind to be able to say, oh my goodness, I am sinful, I need a Savior, and he sent Jesus to die in my place. Just like Lydia, I love in, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, it says this about Lydia, the Lord opened her heart. That's the most beautiful picture, the most beautiful phrase of what God has done to all of us. By the Spirit, he opened our heart to see our sin and need for a Savior so that we might trust in Jesus. Well, not only is this reception of the promise Spirit-led, but it's also a word-fed reception. Look with me again at, at, at verse 29. Look at that phrase there, according to your word. This is another reminder that Simeon was trusting that God will fulfill his promise simply because God said he would, according to your word. Simeon was, was ready to receive the promise because he knew God's word. He had taken and he had fed on God's word so much that he knew he could trust God and he knew God's word. Maybe there was something about him feeding on God's word and all the prophecies about Jesus that maybe led him to this point to come to the temple. Maybe God used that to put him in the temple just at the right time. We don't know, but possibly, but for sure, he says, according to your word. The question for us this morning is, are we prepared to receive the promises of God due to our constant feeding of God's word. It's imperative that we, we truly feed on his word so we be like Simeon, ready to receive the promises. It's hard to receive the promises when we don't know the promises. When we know the promises, then we're, we're ready. We're ready to, to take them in, to trust our lives to them. So what are we doing to truly feed on God's word? Are we spending time in his word daily, seeking to know him more intimately? If not, the question has to be, why not? It's God's word. It's God's word, the word that we need. And I want to encourage all of us that are here this morning to take time daily to feed on God's word. Lots of times at the end of the year, going to the first of the year, we make all these plans, right? We're going to read through the Bible in a year. And if you can do that, that's great. It's actually only, and I'm not super quick, quick reader, it'd probably take you maybe 15 to 20 minutes a day to read through the whole Bible. But if you don't think that's... You can do that. Hey, read through the New Testament in a year. But have a plan to be feeding on God's word every day so that you too, and myself included, can feed on God's word so we're ready to receive his promises. Well, not only is this reception of the promise of Christmas a, a spirit-led and a word-fed reception, it's also a worshipful reception. Look, at, look again at verse 27. And, and the first part of verse 28, and he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, and he took him into his arms. Here we see that God kept his word and fulfilled his promise to Simeon, just as God always does. Because notice what Simeon gets to do in verse 28. I love this. This is maybe my favorite part of the whole passage. Then he took him into his arms. 
And, and the word there for arms is only used one time in the New Testament right here. It's talking about the crook of your arm. You ever held a baby? When they're young, you, you, you hold them in, the, in the, the crook of your arm, in the bend right here. Like I mentioned, we had six children. We had the privilege to hold our children like this. It's, it's an intimate way to get to hold a child. Now, when they had upset stomachs, I turned them over on their stomach. And then they, and they head facing this way. We called it the, the, the football carry, right? And I would help them out that way, but don't tell any child advocates about that. We'll flip them back around. But I got to hold them. And there's an intimacy in that. And I just can't imagine Simeon, he's waiting for this all his life, that God would fulfill his promise. He made specifically to Simeon, he would get to see him. Not only did he get to see the Lord's Christ, he got to hold him. He got to cradle him intimately and look in the eyes of his Savior. Wow, what a privilege. Well, not only did God fulfill his promise to Simeon, but he does it in such a way that he amazes him with his grace, and it should amaze us too. Well, how did Simeon respond? Look at verses 28 through 32. Let me read this again for us. And then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Notice the phrase there at the end of verse 28. He blessed God. He blessed God. Once he had seen Jesus and he held him in his arms, he worshiped God for fulfilling his promise to him by getting to see the Savior of the world. And notice in verse 32 that this salvation was not just for the Jews, it was also for the Gentiles. Thus we get a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He reminds them it's been for all people, for all time. Simeon did what all people, all the people of God do when they see his promise and they see it fulfilled. He worshiped God. And just like Simeon, we too are recipients of his promise. In fact, we were recipients of many promises, as I mentioned, in, in, as I mentioned before, God's word. But let's focus on the promise he has given us in, in our Savior, Jesus. This baby who grew up to be a man died and rose again to forgive us and overcome sin so that we could be born again and be made right with God. Wow, what a promise that many of us near this morning have we received, we received with gratitude and humility that promise. And just as God, the Holy Spirit, led Simeon to the temple to receive Jesus in his arms, God has led us to receive Jesus. And the only right way to respond to a gift like that is worship. Worship with our lives and worship with our lips in following him with all that we are. Well, we've, we've been challenged by true truths concerning the promise of Christmas, the expectation and the reception of the promise of Christmas. Now, look at, let's examine the third truth that will challenge us, the exposition of the promise of Christmas. The exposition at the, of the promise of Christmas. You're saying, my goodness. Well, first of all, sometimes I do this because it helps me remember, all right? They, they rhyme for me to remember. I played a lot of football, if you don't know that, so this helps me in my mind to remember. So this, this goes right along with ex expectation, reception, exposition. Think, what in the world, exp exposition? Where is he getting this? I'll show you in just a second. But here at the Potter's House, we're committed to expository preaching, the expository teaching of God's word. What in the world does that mean? The word expository means to expose, expose the truth of God's word. That, that's all it means. We, we go to God's word, we, we look at it, we study it so we can expose its meaning. Jay does this every week. We're so blessed. We know what to expect when we come here. 
that Jay's going to stand up here and he's going to expose the truth and the meaning and the implications of God's word. That's what, what the expository preaching is all about. Well, in, in the third truth from our passage of Scripture this morning, we'll, we'll discover that the fulfillment of promise of Christmas was to expose something. When Jesus came, he came to expose something, to reveal something. What was the fulfillment of the promise of Christmas meant to expose? There's a phrase in verse 35 that it is a great summary. To the end, look at that last phrase, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The exposition of the promise of Christmas was to expose what the people of Israel thought about Jesus and their reactions or responses to who Jesus was are representative of all people of all time. There's two different reactions to Jesus. The first reaction to Jesus that exposed is seen in verse 34. Look at the words he says to Mary in verse 34. Let's go back here. What he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. The fact that Jesus being the Christ to save the world would cause many people to fall or stumble cannot be argued. Many people had a hard time with Jesus, didn't they? Go read the Gospels. When he showed up, many people, in fact, the majority of people at the time, didn't like what he was teaching. They didn't like what he was doing. It exposed their hearts, and and they, they ended up rejecting him. The very Messiah that God had promised them to make them right with him, they rejected him. And notice that phrase in verse 34, for a sign to be opposed or spoken against. This opposition obviously has been going on from the time of Jesus in the flesh until today and will continue until he sets up his kingdom. Mention the name of Jesus and it will expose what people think about Jesus. Just during this time, you say Merry Christmas to somebody. Notice the response you get. Sometimes you say Merry Christmas. Sometimes people say Happy Holidays. And yesterday, I said Merry Christmas to somebody. Um, out here on the track, my daughter was running, and I was out there encouraging her, and they didn't even respond. They, they said, okay. I don't know. Maybe expose something about what they thought about Jesus the Christ. But often, you, bring, you can say God all you want, but you say Jesus, and that might be fighting words for some people. It exposes our hearts, who, is, who Jesus is. It's clear that the promise of Christmas, uh, when, when it's fulfilled, will expose those who will fall. The second reaction to Jesus that is exposed by the promise of Christmas is seen in verse 34. Behold, the child is appointed for, and then you move on down, it says, the rise of many. The fact of Jesus being the Christ to save the world will cause many people to rise or to resurrect. This means they will accept the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus, as their Savior, who makes them right with the Father. And we, we see this in, in, in a spiritual way in Ephesians 2, 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what happens to those whose hearts are shown or exposed to be trusting in Jesus, the promise of Christmas. So God's word exposes where we are. I remember back when I was in college, our, our fitness test when we'd come back from the summer would be this. We would run a, a 400 meters and we have to get in a certain time. My position group had to get it um, in 58 seconds. That's one time around the track, okay? And that's a bunch of guys who probably weighed between 230 and 260 pounds. 
right? So we had to do that. Then we had a four-minute break, and then we had to run 16 40-yard dashes, all within three-tenths of our fastest ever recorded 40-yard dash. So let's say you ran a 4-9, you had to run all of them within this 5-2, all 16 of them. And you know what that test did? It exposed what we'd been doing all summer. If we'd been faithful to the plan we were given, most of us stayed there and worked out with the, with the strength coach, but if we'd been faithful to our plan, we'd be fine. We would make it through, but if we hadn't been faithful, that test will fi- find out whether you're ready to play or not in a much greater way. That's what Jesus does. And the coming of Jesus and the, 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 the fulfillment of God's promise exposes our hearts. Most people would say that Christmas is a time to bring people together, and that is true. But we see from our passage here this morning that the exposition of the promise of Scripture was also to bring division. The purpose was to divide those who would accept Jesus and those who would not. Hoping that those who had not yet would someday embrace him as their Savior as well. This exposing of the hearts of people didn't come without painful cost. Evidenced by this parenthetical phrase in verse 35. Go back. What it says, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. This speaks of the pain that Mary went through as she witnessed her son die on the cross. It would pierce her soul. And and Mary didn't understand all this yet. But this is something I'm sure that she would think back on as she stood there and watched her son die for the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains what she really witnessed. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what happened on the cross. That's what Mary witnessed, whether she understood it all or not. Well, the exposition of the promise of Christmas continues to happen today. What does the promise of Christmas as seen in Christ expose or reveal about our hearts? What does it reveal about us? What, what, what do we think about Jesus? What have we done with the person of Jesus? The promise that God made from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15. And he fulfilled his promise. And as we saw, we saw the whole picture of what Jesus did on Friday night. What are you going to do with Jesus? When you hear his name and what he's done, what have you done with him? Well, we've been challenged here by, at least I have, these three main truths concerning the promise of Christmas, the expectation, the reception, the exposition of Scripture, Christmas. So how are we going to respond this morning? My last question is really, how have you responded? But how are you going to respond this morning? Ultimately, the promise of Christmas will only be realized for those who have trusted in the fulfillment of God's promise from the very beginning. Those who lovingly take Jesus into their arms and trust him as their Savior from sin have eternal life. Not will have, they have it. An intimate relationship with God of all the universes, even the ones we haven't discovered yet. If you're here this morning and you've never realized that that you're, you're sinful and you're separated from a holy God because of your sin and you deserve the justice of God, the punishment of God because of your sin, if you've never realized that, then I want you to know that you have an opportunity to receive the greatest Christmas present you've ever received. And you can do that this morning. You can turn from trusting in yourself to make yourself right with God. 
and turn and trust and receive and embrace his provision for your sin to make you right with him. That's the greatest Christmas present you could ever receive. And I know everyone who's received that, they would hope that you would do that as well this morning. And if you're here this morning, you've already received the promise of Christmas. I want to call on all of us who have done that to follow the example of Simeon by daily expecting God to come through on his word. You know, many years ago, back in the late 80s, probably in the early 90s, there was something in a men's movement in our country called Promise Keepers. You all remember that? And they would fill stadiums of men called promise keepers, and they would worship the Lord and hear good teaching to exhort us as men to be good husbands and fathers and men in our community and to keep our promises. That was a great event, and I went to a couple of those. Some really good things, but what does it say about our world when we have to have events to keep reminding us to keep our promises? We sometimes have a hard time keeping our promises, but here's the good news. God never has a hard time keeping his promises. He always keeps his promises. And I'm so thankful for that. I also want to follow Simeon's lead, as I mentioned before, by daily feeding on God's word. And by sharing the promise of Christmas, the gospel, with those who have not yet trusted in Christ, who haven't received the promise of Christmas. So here's a question to you. Who this week will you share the promise of Christmas with? Who is it? Who's the person you're going to share the promise of Christmas with this week? I'll tell you an easy way to do that. If you're out to eat this week, just ask this question to somebody who may be serving you. You ever heard of John 3.16? And you're going to go, oh, everybody's heard of that. Nope, they haven't. Hey, when I was pastoring for almost 14 years in Texas, uh, we had just taught through John 3.16, and and a, a young man I was discipling, we were out to eat, and we asked this, the, the, the waitress, we were Buffalo Wild Wings, eating some good wings, not quite as good as Wobbly Boots, but we were eating some wings, and I asked her, have you ever heard of John 3.16? And she looked at me puzzled. Oh, John 3.16, it's in the Bible. And she looked at me, and I said, well, maybe I say a few words, you'll, you'll know it, right? Because we all know John 3.16, right? Everybody in the world knows John 3.16, especially in Texas, it's the, it's the, it's the buckle of the Bible belt, all right? Everybody would know that. I'll go, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. She kept looking at me. I went through the whole thing, and she had never heard of John 3.16. And people, There's people in our community have never heard John 3.16, which is a great summary of God's gift at Christmas, of sending his son as a savior of the world. I challenge you to do that with this week. Maybe not out to eat, maybe just a neighbor. Have you ever heard John 3.16? And let God lead that conversation just around John 3.16. So they too can hear and receive the promise of Christmas. And in order to be able to do that, in order to be out there and, and be bold and obey the Lord in that call, we need his grace. We need his help. We need his spirit to empower us and encourage us to do so. So would you stand with me as we pray in closing and we ask God to do just that in our lives. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your story. That includes us, your story about rescuing a multitude from a very tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. And Lord, for those of us you have rescued, Lord, I pray that we would 
not hold it into ourselves, but you would empower us and strengthen us and embolden us to go out in our community, maybe our families, our neighborhoods, and bring the promise of Christmas to those around us so that they too could embrace your son as their savior and know life. We thank you for when we trust in you, you promise to empower us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by God's grace, let's go out now and apply all that he may have called us to do through his word this morning.